Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. Hello, I'm Katrina Daniel, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Primetime Crime. Today, we're exploring an oldie but a serious baddie, the case of the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia sounds like a cool, mysterious name for what was in reality a terribly ugly murder, the slaughter, actually, of a young woman probably just in the wrong place, at the wrong time, and most certainly with the wrong person. It happened way back in 1947 in a somewhat seedy part of Los Angeles, and it has captured the imaginations of both professional and wannabe crime sleuths for all these 70-plus years. One reason? It's never been solved. The case of the Black Dahlia involves the murder of a very young woman, 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. Her severely mutilated body was found by another young woman who had a much better lot in life. Betty Bursinger. She was pushing her baby daughter in a stroller through a weed-infested lot when she stumbled upon the terribly carved-up body of another young woman just like herself. Back in the day, tabloid newspapers made up funky killer names, and this poor young girl, Betty Short, became the Black Dahlia because newspapers at the time were going through a floral motif naming murders of that post-war era. Arguably, one of the best-informed journalists on the titillating Black Dahlia case is Larry Harnish, the kind of journalist with credentials the rest of us only wish we had. Larry has been copy editor, feature writer, columnist, and blogger for the very prestigious Los Angeles Times. He's also been on several Pulitzer Prize-winning journalistic projects. He's writing a book about the Black Dahlia case, which has captured the attention of crime junkies for more than 70 years. His office is crammed with boxes of files loaded with Black Dahlia interviews. He has studied the case for 24 years, interviewed more than 150 people, Betty Short's surviving family members, the first officers on the scene of the crime, and the woman who had the misfortune to actually discover the Black Dahlia's body. And that's a sight no one can ever unsee. On January 15, 1947, the remains of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, or as she is commonly known, the Black Dahlia, were discovered by Betty Bersinger on a morning stroll on the block of 3800 Norton Avenue in Los Angeles. The body was cut in half and so pale and thoroughly drained of blood that Betty Bersinger actually mistook it for a mannequin at first. The body was cut with surgical precision, leaving no trauma to internal organs or bones, and her face had been cut from her mouth towards her ears to form a haunting, ever-present smile. There was no blood on the ground, making it clear that the body was moved there after she was murdered. Nine days after Short's discovery, an envelope was received by the examiner, addressed in horrific fashion using cut-out letters clipped from movie ads. It read, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. As promised, the envelope contained shorts, social security card, birth certificate, snapshots, and an old address book with some pages missing. Gasoline was rubbed on the contents to remove the fingerprints. Before arriving in L.A., Elizabeth spent time in San Diego with a man named Robert Manley, who drove her to L.A. and helped her check into the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. 
Many reports state that this is the last place that Short was seen alive. And like our old friend the Cecil Hotel, the Biltmore is reportedly haunted. Hotel guests claim to have seen Elizabeth walking on the first floor in a black dress, only to disappear into a wall. Welcome, Larry, and thanks for your time. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Talk to us about the Black Dahlia. How did she get that name? Elizabeth Short got the nickname at a drugstore down in Long Beach. It started as a joke, kind of an in-joke. It was a play off of the, uh, the movie that was out at the time, The Blue Dahlia. And they started calling her The Black Dahlia. Um, the newspapers frequently nicknamed murder cases. Not in this instance. Uh, it, she was actually... Uh, called that, but just as a joke. So it wasn't like she had a Black Dahlia tattoo or Black no. Dahlia t-shirts or anything along those lines? No, no. It was just an in-joke. Uh, newspapers at that time, as I said, uh, liked to uh, nickname murders. Uh, flower flower names were big. There was the whiter, White Orchid. There was the White Orchid uh, murder, and there was the Red Hibiscus murder. And the newspaper, one particular newspaper, tried to call it the werewolf killing. And even after they found out that she was actually called the Black Dahlia, they kept trying to call it the werewolf killing. And they finally said, well, looks like Black Dahlia is a much better name. We'll go with that. Who was Elizabeth Short? Elizabeth Short was a young lady. She was 22 years old when she was killed. Uh, she had come from kind of a, uh, raised by a single mom, one of five girls. Uh, she had traveled around the country quite a bit for someone of her age. She was uh, she had some uh, respiratory problems. And so in the wintertime, the family would send her down to Florida. So she got used to traveling between the Boston area and Florida uh, when she was pretty young, kind of in her teens. And she would also go up to Maine to stay with her, her grandmother. So she got used to traveling around the country. Um, while she was in Florida, she uh, was working as a waitress, met a fighter pilot, uh, he went off because this was during World War II. He went off to India, got killed, uh, but he had, he had proposed to her and she was thinking they were going to get married. And then word comes that, uh, no, he'd been killed. And it really devastated her. She didn't have a lot of stability in her life. So he died in a plane crash at, right at the end of the war. And so immediately after that, uh, she tries to reconnect with another flyer that she met while she was in Florida. Uh, and he was stationed out in Long Beach, California. So in the summer of 1946, first year after the war, she comes out to Long Beach to try to reconnect with this guy. And it didn't work out for a number of reasons. So they go their separate ways. But sort of as a, they, they parted after uh, they had gone up to stay at a, at a hotel in Hollywood. And so she was in Hollywood for about the last five or six months of her life. She met people she would stay with one person or another person, never really had a fixed address. Um, you know, uh, she would, she never worked. Her friends worked, but she didn't work. Her mom sent her money. Uh, and this fellowship that she knew in Long Beach, uh, he would quote unquote loan her money, that kind of thing. Uh, but she never really worked. She just kind of, kind of hung out and lived different places. So that's a, that's a, a quick, a thumbnail sketch of who she was. So she wasn't a young, starry-eyed, wannabe actress that fell into the wrong hands. No. Uh, Elizabeth Short never, I mean, I think it was kind of a cover story to her mom that she wanted to get into the movies. Uh, the reality is that she never, she never took any acting classes. She was never even in the school play. 
Um, there's no sign that she ever took like diction or, you know, dramatic interpretation, anything that one does to learn how to act, you know, deportment, uh, all that kind of thing. There, there's no, there's no sign that she ever did any of that. Um, she was out in LA to kind of just adrift. She really was. What happened to her? Describe what happened to her. The last, you know, as you know, there's that 24-24 rule in homicide investigation. The last 24 hours of somebody's life, the victim's life, and the first 24 hours after they're found. And the problem with the last 24 hours of her life is we don't know what happened. Uh, it's around Christmas 1946. Uh, she was killed in January 47. She told a lot of people, she told a lot of, a lot of stories. And one of the stories she told people was that she was going to go spend the Christmas holidays up in Berkeley with her sister, Virginia, who, who lived up there. Uh, not true. Got on the bus, goes down to San Diego and spends the night in an all night movie theater. The cashier feels sorry for her, takes her home. So she lives with that family for about a month. And after a month, they're saying, you know, it's been a month. This is a small house. Can you please kind of go? And so she had met, a, she was meeting guys down in San Diego. She met a traveling salesman who, uh, you know, they went out for dining and dancing. Anyway, long story short is he ends up bringing her back to LA and he's got her luggage. Uh, she doesn't have a place to stay in LA. She says, well, just take me to the bus station. And he said, well, it's a lousy neighborhood. You know, let's check your luggage. So they check her luggage and he takes her to the Biltmore Hotel, which was one of the premier um, luxury uh, hotels in downtown Los Angeles at that time. He leaves her there. She's never seen again. And she's found like almost a week later, just terribly murdered, um, mutilated, cut in half, body drained of blood, uh, been hit in the head a couple of times. When they did the autopsy, they found that uh, there was like bleeding in the brain and she had been tied up at some point. Take us back to uh, how was she found? How was the Black Dahlia Elizabeth Short? How was she founded by whom? Okay, let me set the stage for you a little bit by describing the crime scene. The crime scene is a, in a very flat part of Los Angeles. Most of Los Angeles is hilly or whatnot. This area is flat, flat, flat. And there were housing developments on either side of this vacant block, but this actual block was vacant. Um, it had been, she was found in January, so there had been the winter rains in Los Angeles, and there was grass. Uh, had grown up maybe ankle high, that sort of thing, maybe a shrub or two here or there. Um, but that's about the, the extent of it. Uh, clear sight lines to a major thoroughfare um, a block and a half away. And then uh, on a clear day, you can see the Hollywood sign. So it's flat, flat, flat. Um, anyway, the block north of the crime scene um, is little starter homes for uh, young middle-class families and the lady who found the body is named Betty Bursinger. And they were, uh, she was going to take the, uh, her husband's shoes down to the shoe repair store to get them fixed. And so she's got her little girl in this stroller and she's going down the street along this long vacant block. And the way she described it to me was there was a lot of broke, broken glass on the sidewalk. And so what she was focused on was steering the wheels of the stroller through the broken glass. And so she was looking straight ahead and she said, down off sort of to the side, I noticed there was this white thing and it didn't look quite right. And so I better call the police. Her main goal, 
she really emphasized this when I talked to her, was that her daughter did not see it. And that's a crucial part of the story because in so many retellings, you have this willful little girl who wanders off into the weeds and is horrified. And in reality, little girl never saw the body. So Betty goes down to the next block where there are houses and she starts knocking on the doors. And she finally finds somebody who's got a telephone, lets her in. And so she calls the cops and they don't ask, what's your name? They say, what number are you calling from? So she said, well, I looked down at the dial on the rotary phone and read off the number of where I was calling from. And then I went on my way. She went down to the shoe repair store. She was a woman of mystery for a while. They didn't know who'd found the body, but that was it. How was the crime scene? Uh, Elizabeth Short was found really in the, in the middle of this vacant block. The street was paved, sidewalk was in, there were curb cuts to the houses, but there were no houses. So it's like the beginnings of a neighborhood where you have the street, where you have the curbs, where you have the sidewalks, where you have the, the cuts in the sidewalk for the driveways, but that's it. And she was sort of lying up by now today where it would be like next to a driveway. Um, and that's where she was found. The, cause of, because of the winter rains, the, the land was kind of grassy. It was sort of maybe ankle high. Um, and maybe like a six foot wide uh, strip of sort of higher ground and then level down a little bit. And so she was right there. Um, her legs were spread, uh, not necessarily posed in terms of not like her legs weren't rigid like a V. They didn't look like that, um, but they were spread and her um, arms were up over her head and her head was tilted a little bit. Uh, to the left. As I said, a lot had been done to her. She had been hit in the head. She had been mutilated. She had been cut in half. Um, a tattoo was cut out of her thigh and put somewhere. Uh, so a lot of things were, were done to her. What do you mean her tattoo was cut out of her thigh and put somewhere? Oh, um, she had a tattoo of a rose and we know this because people described it. Uh, Elizabeth Short had a tattoo of a rose on her uh, leg, and the killer cut it out of her leg and put it in her vagina. In addition to slashing her mouth and putting these little little cuts in her nose and um, slashing her upper lip, there were slashes on her uh, hip, but they're very in her pubic area, and there was a great big cut uh, from her belly button down toward her pubic area. And again, she was cut in half. Um, but the, the cutting, the slashing was sort of this controlled frenzy where the slashing was very regular, horizontal and vertical, like almost like up and down, back and forth, or like at an angle. It wasn't just crazy out of control slashing. It was sort of, this, as I said, controlled fury. Um, very odd. And slashing is always way more personal than a gunshot. Yeah. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention, pardon me, that her breasts were also mutilated. And when I talked to uh, one of the one of the profilers, he said, you know, um, it's the the level of violence and the kind of violence that you see here. Um, it wasn't it was more directed at her personally rather than Elizabeth Short as a female, as a woman. It's like the violence was directed at Elizabeth Short as Elizabeth Short. Do you have any suspects who would hate her that much to do that to a little 22-year-old girl? I spent a long time researching this neighborhood. Uh, I one, The profiler I interviewed, John Douglas, said there's something about this neighborhood because the killer could have taken the body anywhere. He could have put it in the ocean or on the desert. 
he had a reason for picking this neighborhood. He had some connection to it. And so what do you know about the neighborhood? And I said, well, all I know is it's a white middle-class neighborhood. Okay. So I went all the way back to when it was a rancho all the way up to the present. I didn't find anything at all interesting uh, about it. And then I was going through some documents that somebody sent me and it looked like someone had written, uh, the body was found on Norton Avenue, uh, which runs all across the city of LA. Uh, and so it, it looked like something on this wedding certificate um, was uh, said Norton Avenue. So I got a copy of it and it was uh, the wedding certificate, not of Elizabeth Short, but it was the older sister, Virginia, who was living in Berkeley. Uh, and she, the matron of honor to her wedding lived a block from the crime scene. And I thought, wow, what is that all about? And so I began researching this matron of honor. And it turned out that her dad was a surgeon. Uh, and when you go through the news stories and whatnot, you find out that he was a surgeon and had been very respected, uh, but that his life was unraveling uh, in, the last, in the last year, because he died a year after Elizabeth Short was killed. Um, but he had the, some sort of progressive uh, dementia and all this sort of thing. So uh, I like, his name's Walter Bailey, and I think of the people who have been identified, uh, he at least had a connection to the neighborhood. Of all the people who have been suggested, he was a surgeon. He actually could have done what was done to her. And there's a connection between his family and Elizabeth Short's family. His daughter knew her sister. So that's kind of where what I have been pursuing. Um, he was never a suspect at the time. Uh, they they had no reason to to look at him. As I said, he was a uh, semi-retired at that point, prominent doctor. You know, nothing at all questionable or illicit in his background, except at the very end of his life, where during World War II, uh, he and his family sort of adopted this refugee, this doctor who had come to America as a refugee and was working as a nurse until she could, you know, become certified as a doctor. And so he and this lady got involved. He walked out on the family and all kinds of wild stuff happened. And when I started researching him, uh, the one thing that people said is they could not believe the radical shift in her, his personality at the end of his life. You're attributing that to, to his dementia? Yeah, what, what we know about him is uh, from his death certificate. It said he had a condition called encephalomalacia. And what's that? what that is is a softening of the brain. Uh, and as we know now, because as our population ages, we're more familiar with dementia, uh, it's progressive, it's not linear. The effect that dementia has on the brain depends on what part of the brain is affected. So we don't know, we don't know exactly how his behavior was affected all we know is anecdotally that he had this medical condition and his friends, uh, his family said, yeah, he underwent a radical shift. And then the other thing we know from news stories is that um, this partner of his that he was involved with had learned a secret about him and he lived in terror that she would expose him. And every time he tried to return to his wife, uh, this this partner would threaten to expose his secret. Now, we don't know what the secret is, but we know for darn sure that he had one. It's in the news stories. It's in, because the wife and the girlfriend started fighting over his estate. So they filed all these lawsuits. And of course, all this information is in the lawsuit. So we know 
He had a secret. We just don't know what it was. Larry, how would Elizabeth Short and Dr. Walter Bailey have come into contact with each other? That's pure speculation. We don't know for sure. It is possible that uh, she was referred by Virginia or by her husband, Adrian West. That's possible. They could have said, hey, we know this family in Los Angeles. If you get in a bind, call them because he knew them from church. What's safer than knowing somebody from church? That was the connection between the two families. Uh, we don't know if that happened. It could have happened. Um, and if if Elizabeth Short had contacted the Bailey families, he would have been very helpful. I mean, that was kind of his nature, uh, presumably. Um, the one thing that she might have done that set him off is one of her many sob stories, and she had a whole repertory of them, was to say that she had been married and her husband died. Well, she wasn't married, but he did die. And they had a son who died. Okay. None of that was true. And so the one thing about Walter Bailey's otherwise pretty unremarkable life is that he had a son who died. Uh, very tragically, his son was out on a bicycle and run over by a truck. And Walter Bailey was in surgery at a county general hospital. And they took the son of course, to the trauma hospital, which was a different one. And they didn't tell him until he got out of surgery. And they said, by the way, and Walter Bailey really felt that if they had told him that his son had been run over by a truck and, you know, he had gone to the trauma hospital and just left the other patient, I'll just, you know, you take care of that. I'm going to go over to the trauma hospital and operate on my son. He could have saved his life. Unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, when you look at the son's death certificate, there was a truck that ran over his head. So, I mean, he was dead instantly. But, um, you know, for the rest of his life, Walter Bailey carried that around that if they had only told him. Um, it is possible, hypothetically, that if she told the story about the dead son and he really had a dead son, that he might have originally been sympathetic and then found out she was lying because he's a doctor. He could have asked the questions because Elizabeth Short had never been pregnant. She had never given birth. She didn't know anything about little kids and raising little kids that you would know if you had given birth and were a mom. She didn't know any of that. And so presumably uh, she would have tried to fake it, talk her way out of it. And he would have gotten her. And that, that's really all I can come up with. Um, it's, the, it's the most significant thing about his life. And we know for sure that she was telling that story because many people after she was killed would say, oh yeah, she, she talked about the dead son. So you're saying that the motive might have been that Dr. Bailey was angry at her for lying about having a, a baby son that got killed? It's possible. When you look at what was done to her and kind of the order that was done into her, what killed her was concussion and loss of blood from having her mouth slashed, okay? That was one of the first things the killer did. Now, only the killer knows for sure why did he slash her mouth? But he had some reason for doing it. Uh, and that's, you know, again, a lot of what was done to her would seem symbolic. And I guarantee you, all of those injuries, all the slashing, that had significance to the killer. If, you know, it, it's kind of a challenge to crawl into his head and figure out what did this mean to the killer? It had meaning for sure. The slashing, the cutting, all that stuff, it had, cutting out the tattoo, all of that had meaning. Uh, the, but we don't, we don't necessarily know what it is. The cutting in half was probably for transportation. Um, it's a lot easier to move half of a body. There's no blood. And we also know that 
he scrubbed the body. He washed it and scrubbed it. We know because there was a, a brush and the brush left fibers in the slashes. And so we know that. So your basic garden variety killer wouldn't know to do these surgical type slashes or to completely clean up any evidence on the body. No, and the, the killer was way ahead of his time in terms of washing the body. Uh, her clothes were never found. They thought they found her purse and a pair of shoes, but uh, by the time the cops showed up to get them, they'd been left on a trash can. The trash guys had taken them away, so they went through the trash to get this particular person pair of shoes. Um, the only other thing we have from the killer uh, that he ever touched was this envelope of uh, her belongings that were in her purse. And there was a lot of mail sent to the police, sent to the newspapers after she was killed. The police discounted absolutely all of it, except for the stuff, the one envelope that had her belongings in it. Uh, believe it or not, writing prank letters to the cops, writing prank letters to the newspapers, that was a thing. That was a thing in the 40s. If you wanted to mess with the cops you would, or the papers, you would just send, you know, the, like these ransom notes. And there's a lot of them. But the only one that the original investigators believed really came from the killer was this one envelope of her stuff. And he'd been very careful with it. Everything had been soaked in a solvent, either kerosene, gasoline, something like that. And the original news accounts say, yeah, there was this address book in it with a lot of pages cut out again with, an, you know, a sharp blade. Um, and the pages were still damp. Uh, it was addressed with letters cut out of uh, a newspaper ad for, for movies. And so lots of people touched it. Um, they found, the police said, well, we found mostly smudges and blurs, nothing really usable in terms of fingerprints because a lot of people had handled the envelope. They thought they might have found something on the back of one of the larger pieces of newsprint that had been cut out of the paper. Um, but the uh, LAPD crime lab at that time was relatively limited. Um, it was advanced for 1947, but really the, the, uh, the best crime lab in the country at that time was run by the FBI. And so as one did in 1947, they sent all this material off to the FBI to be tested. And what they did with the FBI said, if it's destroyed during testing, that's okay. And okay. so the chain of custody is it went from from the LAPD to the FBI, and then we don't know. Anyway, what, what you have in one of the challenges of the Black Dahlia case is there isn't a lot of material that the killer touched. He touched the body, but he washed it, you know, so that's kind of useless. They never found her clothes. Uh, you've got the person shoes that maybe he touched, but so did lots of other people. So what you have left is the envelope. And again, lots of people touched that. He washed everything with a solvent of some sort. Hypothetically, uh, there were stamps on that envelope. He might have licked them, maybe. Um, the, and I am not a DNA expert. I don't, can't tell you where the technology is in recovering DNA from the back of stamps that were licked in 1947. <laughs> Theoretically, if we knew where the envelope was, you know. Uh, and, the, and the thing is, uh, there was a, a very common office accessory at that time where instead of licking stamps, it was like a, a little glass dish with a sponge in it. And he could have easily done that. We don't know. So that's, but that's, that would be the, the very limited. I mean, just to, 
I mean, that would be the first question is where would you get a DNA sample from this little amount of material? And then it's like, okay, now, you know, after the Golden State Killer, maybe they could get some usable, if they got usable DNA, you know, they could go to one of these places and look for a fourth, fourth cousin, you know, once removed or something and find something, maybe. Having studied this for 24 years, Larry, do you think this is ever going to be solved? Well, Katrina, I think if you mean solved in terms of someone arrested, prosecuted, sent to prison, no, that will never happen. It's too old. And a, an unfortunate fact of life is people get keep getting killed in Los Angeles. And so there is a detective assigned to the Black Dahlia case. She is primarily a custodian of the files. Uh, her supervisor has told her, don't do any interviews about the Black Dahlia case. They take you away from real murders that could actually be solved and could result in arrests and prosecutions and stuff. So in terms of solved and resulting in an arrest and a prosecution, no. And the LAPD, like police departments across the country, they have a cold case unit. But there's really not that much motivation to go back and try to figure out all these years later who did it and that is just going to solve a lot of people's curiosity but never solve anybody. I mean, there's so many armchair detectives out there that you're never going to please them anyway. Larry Harnish, thank you so very much for your time and allowing us to debrief you in full about the Black Dahlia. Thanks Glad a lot and good luck with your book. Thank you, Katrina. Great to be here. I'm Katrina Daniel. Thank you for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime, Instagram, Primetime Crime 7, and Twitter, Primetime Crime 3. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. 